Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. If you will, take your copy of Scripture and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses from Jeremiah 1 in just a moment. Have you been saved? That is language that we have used in church for many, many years, describing for us what it means to express salvation. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. We're going to deal with three truth statements about salvation. But, but let's define that a little bit. Being saved is kind of a churchy terminology. What do we mean when we say, have you been saved? Well, well let's illustrate it for a moment by thinking about maybe some of you have had the experience of having your life saved from some type of trial or some type of catastrophic event. Maybe some of you in the room or maybe some of you that are listening by way of radio or maybe those of you that are on Facebook or YouTube can recall a time in your life where there was this disease or illness that you had. And some doctor was wise enough and insightful enough to diagnose you and be able to treat you so that you didn't die. Somebody saved your life. Or maybe it was a little more uh, dramatic than that. Maybe you were walking along as a child and you were right there next to the road and you were about to step in front of oncoming traffic and somebody, a brother, a sister, a mom or dad or a friend, grabbed your arm and pulled you out in front of oncoming traffic and saved your life and you'll never forget that. Maybe you were swimming and you were saved from drowning. Now, one of the things that I know is that when your life is saved, it makes an indelible mark on your memory. I can distinctly remember as a teenager falling in a lake, having to be pulled out. I was fully dressed, weighed down, having to be pulled out of that lake by my brother and my father. And not that I would have died, but as a teenager, you don't, you're not thinking you know, whether you're going to survive. I mean, you're not thinking, hey, I'm definitely going to survive this. This may be a life-altering event. It's something that's stuck forever in my mind. And for many of you that are listening, you know that to be true. If you have experienced a life-saving event, you're never going to forget it. Well, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical salvation, spiritual salvation. But see, we don't often recognize that as humans, we are in a situation where our lives need to be saved. We're just moseying about life and everything's going okay, but we don't realize that because we are sinners and we're apart from God, that we're actually destined for death. The Bible says that we as humans were made in God's image. We're image bearers of God, but... Adam and Eve made a really foolish set of decisions in the Garden of Eden, and sin entered the world, and so sin entered into all of us and all of those that are Adam and Eve's children. And the Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Every human being on planet Earth is a sinner, and so every human being on planet Earth is destined for death unless there is a life-saving event that takes place that brings you from death to life. And we're going to look at one of those stories here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Read with me this story about the call of an authentic prophet. 
The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Let's stop right there for just a second and make an observation point. Uh, One of the things that we need to understand about Jeremiah's salvation experience, as we're going to read in just a moment, it probably would not have happened had Jeremiah not been a part of a family that loved God. It's just reality. Jeremiah had a father who was a priest. He was raised as a part of God's people. And and let me tell you something, parents. One of the things that I would encourage you, parents of children, parents of teenagers, if you love God and you want your children to know Jesus Christ, one of the best things you can do is make sure they know Scripture, is make sure they're a part of a church, is make sure they hear the good news of Jesus on a regular basis. Say, Pastor, we're in a pandemic. We can't come back to church full time. Well, Well, we have... Many means of you being able to watch church, it's important for them to know God's Word. Because God's Word will often come to us in ways that we don't expect, but it won't come to us unless God's Word is being spoken. And that's what happened with Jeremiah. Notice this, verse 4. The Word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah's own testimony about his conversion. The Word of the Lord came to me. God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Don't say, I'm only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's conversion story. Wonderful testimony of how Jeremiah came to faith in God and was called by God to do a great and glorious task. Three truth statements about salvation. Here's the first one. God's work is the foundation of our salvation. Notice what verse 5 says. Before I formed you, four times in this one verse, God refers to himself in the first person speaking about what he did to make sure Jeremiah was a part of his family, was saved and redeemed. Before I formed you, I knew you. And then I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet in the nations. That's not Jeremiah speaking about himself. That's not Jeremiah's dad speaking about him. That is God speaking directly to a young prophet, saying, before all of this, I formed you, I knew you, I consecrated you, and I appointed you. And some of you, some of us, when we read that, we might find that a tad bit on the troubling side. Because didn't you, when you came to faith in Jesus, didn't you trust in Jesus? Didn't you choose God? Didn't you receive Jesus as your Lord? Didn't you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior? So we may say, hold on a second, this is about Jeremiah. This isn't universal. This is his experience and his event. Well, notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, very similar language, verse 29. He said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
So what are we to do with that? Well, we need to be very clear that we can disagree on a lot of things as Christians, but we better be very careful when we decide we're going to disagree with what God has said. This is God's testimony about salvation to Jeremiah. So let's unpack this and try to make sense of it with regard to our salvation. Very clearly, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God is saying that the formation of a child in the womb at conception is his job and his responsibility. He's also saying, and that word knew is the most intimate word for knowledge used in the Old Testament. It relates to marital knowledge between a husband and a wife. It relates to a very intimate knowledge between people. And what God is saying in this context to Jeremiah is before you were even conceived, I knew you. I knew who you would be, I knew what you would do, I knew where you would go, I knew you in the most basic and clear way possible. God's saying, I'm the one who formed you, and before I formed you, I knew you. He also says, before you were born, before you entered the world, before your mother went through those contractions and gave birth to you as a little baby, I made you holy. The most clear word regarding salvation in this verse is the word consecrated. It's the word that says God makes us holy. He sets us apart. And for any person who enters into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, they experience this consecration aspect of what it means to be a Jesus follower. The only way we get to heaven is to be completely perfect. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to my boys about this and reminding them the only people that go to heaven are absolutely perfect people. Seriously. The Bible's very clear about that. The only people that go to heaven are absolutely perfect people. The problem with that is none of us match up to that standard. We are not perfect. We're not good enough to get to heaven on our own. We can't be made right on our own good works. But what the Bible says is God consecrates us and makes us holy. How does he do that? He does that because Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life. He was the perfect person. We get to heaven based on his perfection. Lived a perfect life, died on a cross, took our place. He put our sins in the grave like we pictured in Addison's baptism a minute ago. He put our sins in that grave. He left our sins there. He rose from the grave perfect. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a transfer that takes place. And that transfer is depicted in that word, I consecrated you. And God is saying to Jeremiah, before you were born, I consecrated you. In other words, God's plan was to save Jeremiah even before Jeremiah lived a life, made a choice, or committed a sin. I consecrated you. And then he said, I appointed you. The reason God saved Jeremiah and the reason God talks about Jeremiah's salvation before Jeremiah was even born is because God had a plan. God had a purpose, a purpose for Jeremiah's ministry to appoint him as a prophet to the people of Israel and as a prophet to the nations. He had a role and a responsibility. Now, some of you are are hearing this and you're like, man, hold on a second. What does this do for for my obligation in salvation? Uh, how, how, how does this fit? I, I thought I was supposed to choose, and I was supposed to follow Christ. God's the one who chooses? If you ask me this question, does God choose you, or do you choose God? Here would be my answer. Yes. God chooses you, 
and you respond to that choice and respond to God. This is the tension that we often talk about between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Somebody asked the great Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, one time, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And Spurgeon's answer was, I was unaware that friends were in need of reconciliation. The point being that God choosing us and selecting us and predestining us is not in any conflict with our responsibility to receive that salvation by faith and trust in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means very simply this, that for anyone who is elected by God or chosen by God, as Jeremiah describes, or God describes in Jeremiah 1.5, it means that they still need to put their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. The only people that are going to go to heaven are those who trust in Jesus for their eternal life, confess their sins, repent, turn to Christ, and that in no way is in conflict with what God says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. We still need to receive Him and we need to trust Him. One of the best ways I like to describe it is this. Here's what this means. It means that your salvation is always God's initiative. The Bible tells us that there are none good. There's none righteous, none who seek God. Do you realize how you came to faith in Jesus was because God came after you? God chased you. God searched you out. God looked for you. God found you. And God initiated the work of salvation. He initiated it when He sent Jesus to die on the cross. He initiated it when Jesus rose from the dead. He initiated it when the Holy Spirit found you wherever you were in your sin-sick state, in your sin-dead state. He initiated it by drawing you to a faith relationship with Himself. Listen. God's work is the foundation for our salvation. It reminds us that we can't take credit. If you're sitting in here tonight, or if you're listening, if you're watching on television, and you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, do you realize you can't take any credit for the salvation that you have? It is a gift. God did all the work. God redeemed you. He chose you. He drew you. He sent His Son to die for you. The only thing that we do is that we receive that gift by faith. And that is glorious and wonderful. The reason that's glorious and wonderful is because if it's God's work and God is the one who did the work to bring us to salvation, then we can't lose it when we receive it because it's God the one who did it. It's not about me and my efforts and my, my work. It's about me receiving what God has done. Let me give you an aside implication from this text that I don't think uh, we should gloss over. God makes it very clear, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Listen, for me, I'm not a one-issue politics kind of guy, and I'm not saying any of us should be that, but very clearly in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it is clear that God knows a baby before that baby is conceived and before that baby is born. Life happens at the very least at conception. And according to this text, God knew Jeremiah before he was even formed, conceived in the womb. Meaning that, folks, I'm going to be pro-life all day long. Why am I going to be pro-life all day long? Because I believe that a life that God knows is a life that has a right to live. And a life worth living. That's just an implication. I think this text draws us to that. But we need to know as a truth statement... That God's work forms the foundation for our salvation. Let me give you a second truth statement that, that I hope will encourage you. God's presence is the peace that overcomes our fears. 
Notice Jeremiah's response. And most scholars think that he was about a he was a teenager at this time, probably in 13, 15, 17, somewhere in that age range. He was living under Josiah's kingship. Josiah was the last good king of Judah, and he was living under Josiah's kingship. And God spoke to him. The word of the Lord came and said, I have, this is your salvation. I saved you. I consecrated you. Set you apart. You're a follower of me. You love me, and now you've got a job. You've got an assignment. You're going to go be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah's response, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I'm a teenager. How am I going to go talk to the nations? How am I going to go talk to my nation? How am I going to talk to my king? How am I going to talk to my leaders? How am I going to talk to all those people that I've looked out and seen and seen reject you? How am I going to do that? Notice what God says. Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah had what we could consider to be a valid complaint. I'm a teenager. I don't, I don't know how to stand before kings and nations and tell them things that they need to hear. It, it, it's a valid complaint. But God saw through the complaint to the fear. Why was it that Jeremiah held back? Why was it that Jeremiah said, I couldn't do it? He couldn't do it. Jeremiah said he couldn't do it because he was afraid of what might happen. What's going to happen when a teenager stands before a king? What's going to happen when a young adult stands before a nation? What's going to happen? And we think that Jeremiah actually spent part of his time preaching to the leftovers in Samaria, the northern tribes of Israel. What's going to happen when he goes up there and preaches to all those people who rejected God's right to rule over them and experienced God's judgment? What's going to happen? By the way, Jeremiah had a 40-year ministry where very few people, if any at all, ever listened to what he said and responded and repented. Jeremiah could kind of see that coming. He was afraid, afraid of what might happen, afraid of what might be, afraid of what he might experience. God saw through his complaint to his fears. God's presence is the peace that can overcome our fears. God's presence is what promises and gives us strength in the middle of our circumstances and our situations. Uh, I read, came across this quote this week. Y'all will appreciate this. Uh, this was from the Kiwanis magazine a number of years ago. Sometimes when I get ner- in a nervous dither over such current problems as inflation, war, taxes, crime, pollution, political intrigue, urban sprawl, population, and whatever, we could add pandemics, we could add the stock markets, we could add jobs, we could add all the other things, and whatever, I find myself yearning for 1933 when all we had was fe- to fear was fear itself. Directly drawing from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's quote. When we look around us, there's a lot to be afraid of. There are some people, and maybe rightly so, some people that are afraid of getting COVID-19. Afraid of what the, the disease might do to your body and what it might mean for you. Some of you are not afraid for yourself, but you're afraid for a family member that you're responsible for. Or a family member that you're a caregiver for. And, and you're not so much worried what would happen if you would get it, but you would be devastated to know that you got it and you shared it with somebody else. It's kind of why we're observing social distancing in our church and masks and hand sanitizer and disinfecting and cleaning, but... But sometimes it goes beyond just the normal observation of trying to be healthy and and cautious, and it moves to fear. 
where we're controlled by that worry that something's going to happen. And some of us are not so much worried about that, but we're worried about what is the reaction going to do to my long-term financial future? Am I going to have a job? What does my job look like? If I do have a job, am I going to be able to save enough? Or is all the government give-outs, handouts, is it going to affect in my, my income or my you know, bank account or my retirement account so much that there's nothing there because of inflation? Or, or this or that. Or we're worried about grandchildren or we're worried about family members, we're worried about friends. Or maybe it's none of those things. Maybe we're just worried about being isolated. Jeremiah was a youth when he had this experience. Do you realize that one of the most uh, difficult ages to experience the isolation and the panic that we've gone through is a teenager? Thoughts of suicide are on the rise among young adults between 18 and 24 because of the isolation and the fear that has been driven into our minds over the last six to seven months. What do we do with it? We remember that we have the presence of God. But you get this. Jeremiah faced things that you and I will probably never face. And do you know where God was in the midst of it? Right there with him. I'm going to tell you, there have been some times over the last few months I've been afraid. That I've worried about what we're going to do and how we're going to do this, and how we're going to respond, how we're going to react, how we're going to manage, how we're going to make it. How we're just going to get through the day. How we're going to do remote learning. How we're both going to work. How we're going to work from home. How we're going to work from home while we're doing remote learning. If we're going to do remote learning, what does that look like? I've got all these thoughts and worries. How's it going to affect the church? How are we going to respond as a church? And a lot of times those thoughts and concerns turn into fears. I'm going to tell you something. In the last six months, do you know what one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty? God has never left me alone. God promises His presence. Some of you listening feel so alone because you're isolated. I realize that you need the touch of people. You need interaction with people. We all do. But let me, be assur- let me assure you, if you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, God's presence is the peace that overcomes our fears. God is with us. He is with you. Some of you listening can testify. Some of you listening, some of you watching absolutely know this to be true and let me encourage you find a platform and scream it from the top of your tower that God has been with me and God is with you and God will give his presence and his peace because others need to hear it they need to know how they can know God well when you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ God's presence is with you no matter what you go through that's good news let me give you a third statement about salvation God's word is the content for our calling I want you to grasp this, church. Followers of Jesus, we need to get this. God did not save us to sit and soak in a seat. God did not save us for us to just experience His peace and grace. God saved us for a purpose. He has given us a calling. There's not a follower of Jesus that has received salvation and forgiveness that God doesn't intend to use in some capacity to lead others to follow Him. It's just not the case. Notice what he said to Jeremiah. Then the Lord put his hand on me and touched my mouth. Touched my mouth. The same picture is given to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when God took a coal off a of fire and laid it on his mouth and consecrated Isaiah's lips. The picture's there. God gave him the word, touched his mouth and said, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. I've set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. God has given us an expectation 
as followers of Jesus, to declare the good news to others who need to become followers of Jesus. He's called us to that end. He called Jeremiah to that end. He gave him his word. And where does that content come from? Folks, it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't primarily even come from your experiences. While it is great for you to tell someone how you came to faith in Jesus, we ought to do that. But the content, the driving force behind it is God's word. What did Jeremiah keep saying over and over to the people? What God said to say. What do we need to say? What does our world need to hear? They don't need to hear my opinions. They don't need to hear your opinions. We're getting into an election cycle. And let me tell you, there are going to be plenty of platforms for plenty of opinions. And you're probably going to read and hear more opinions than you care to ever read and listen to and hear in the next 70-some days till the election. And you'll probably hear a bunch more after that. Do you know what we need, what our culture needs, what our nation needs, what our people need, what we need as a church, what you need? We need God's Word. We don't need my opinion or your opinion. We need God's opinion. We need God's statement. And God's statement, God's opinion says that we need a relationship with the living God, that we need forgiveness, that we need redemption, that we need new life, that we're lost in sin and we can be forgiven. And folks, there are people outside of this room and outside of our context, but in our relationships, they need the forgiveness and the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. And we get the privilege of sharing that. Notice the specific way that God spoke to Jeremiah. He used six metaphors to describe for him his responsibility. Some are negative and some are positive. Actually, the first four are negative. He said, you're going to pluck up, you're going to break down. You're going to destroy and you're going to overthrow. Then you're going to build and you're going to plant. What's fascinating is if you track out Jeremiah's ministry, it was much more negative, much more difficult than it was positive. And it was building up. Jeremiah got to tell all of the people of Israel and all the nations how they were going to experience judgment. Say, man, that's a downer. Why are you telling me that? Why are you telling us that that, that's negative? Let Let me tell you something. Unless we know the bad truth that we're sinful and wicked and apart from God and on our pathway to a life separated from God for eternity, the good news just doesn't mean very much. And Jeremiah had this wonderful privilege of preaching bad news so that he could turn around and tell them, The good news, that there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's an opportunity to repent. And by the way, this is pictured most beautifully with Jesus on the cross. Do you realize that? Jesus experienced the judgment that so that we don't have to experience that judgment. Jesus experienced destruction, the destruction of sin. He experienced the overflow of Satan and unrighteousness on the cross. He experienced that judgment. Because coming to faith in Christ is a recognition that our sins need to be judged and that we can't do anything about it ourselves. Let me give you a picture that I think describes this beautifully. A few days ago, my boys asked to watch one of the Chronicles of Narnia movies. And we actually picked up and watched The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's the third book in the series, the third movie. There's this wonderful image, this picture of how these Four children in the earlier books went and visited Narnia. In the third book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, two of the earlier kids, Edmund and Lucy, Lucy got to go back. And, and when they got to go back, they brought along a cousin named Eustace. And if you've not read the book or watched the movie, then just know Eustace is like the whiniest, most complainy, annoying kid that has ever been created. 
I mean, he was just awful. He was terrible to his friends. He was terrible to his cousins. He was terrible to everybody. But he, he, he's in this environment where he's experiencing all of these new things, and he's hateful and sinful and evil, really. And in the story, he and the rest of the crew make their, their way to an island. On that island, Eustace kind of gets lost by himself and starts to walk around. And he looks in a cave and he sees a dragon. And he watches that dragon die. And the dragon kind of expires. And he decides to explore. And he walks in and he sees the hoard of gold that the dragon had. And in that hoard of gold, he tried to figure out how to get the gold back on the boat so he could take it back with him and he could, he could take care of himself and he was prideful and arrogant and selfish. And in that moment, he put on a bracelet, a dragon bracelet, which according to the story, turned Eustace into a dragon. And, and it changed him because it helped him realize how bad he really was. Finally told, was able to tell his cousins that he was a dragon. And a few days later, as he was dreaming and trying to figure out how he was going to get better and how he was going to change and how he was going to maybe become a boy again, he met the main character in all the stories, Aslan the lion. And in that dream, Aslan offered for Eustace to climb down into this pool of water that would heal a wound that he had. But he told him, Aslan told Eustace, that he had to undress first. He had to take off his dragon scales. And so in the scene, or in the book, Eustace is clawing off his dragon scales like a snake would de-skin. And, and he took a layer off. And he looked down and he realized there was another layer. And he took a layer off and he looked down and he realized there was another layer. And he took a layer off and he realized that there was another layer. And finally, Aslan looked at Eustace and said, I have to be the one to take your scales off. And so Eustace laid down, and when the lion scratched his scales off, Aslan scratched his scales off, Eustace said, it hurt, but I saw the scales drop off of me. And he said, the lion picked me up because I had no skin and threw me into that water. And he said, it smarted, it hurt, it was painful. But then it was immediately refreshing. And I looked down and I realized I had skin again. I'd become a boy. Because what Eustace recognized in that moment was he could not solve his own sin problem. We can try all we want to cover up our sinfulness. We can try all we want to cover up our ugliness. We can try all we want to take away our own unrighteousness. And we can scrape it off. We can try to be better. And we cannot be good enough to take it off ourselves. We need someone else to intervene and rescue us from our sinfulness. You need someone else to intervene and rescue you from your sinfulness. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube and you'd like to know more about how to put your faith and trust in Jesus, it's admitting that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself believing on the Lord Jesus that he can forgive you of your sins and committing your life to following him. You can tell God that in a prayer. Maybe you'd like some help with how to do that. If you'll use the comments section on Facebook, let us know you'd like to know more about trusting in Jesus or send us an email, info at wilkesboroughbaptist.org or give us a phone call, 336-667-1271 is the phone number at Wilkesboro Baptist. We'll be happy to tell you how you can put your faith relationship in Jesus and know that you're forgiven. Maybe you're in the room tonight, 
You've not trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're in the room this morning. You need to trust Jesus. Would you like to know how? At the invitation, I'd love nothing more than to tell you how Jesus can wash your sin away. How He can do what you can't do. You can never be good enough. But Jesus came to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. Church, those of you that have experienced the new life of God, this gives us reason to smile, to rejoice, to know that God is with us forever, and to remember that He's given us an expectation of sharing that wonderful good news with people who desperately need salvation. Would you stand with me? I'm going to have a word of prayer. Our worship team is going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. If you'd like to know more about trusting Jesus, you're welcome to come forward at the invitation. I'd love to talk to you. Or if you're not comfortable coming forward, that's fine. I'll be here at the end. I'd love nothing more than to tell you how you can put your faith relationship in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness He came to offer. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in this moment and thank you that you did what we couldn't do. We couldn't save ourselves. We can't deal with our own sinfulness. We can't solve our own unrighteous problems. But Lord Jesus, you came to a cruel cross, took our sin on your own shoulders, died for our unrighteousness so that we could have new life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. I pray for those who are watching those who are listening, those who are heeding this word, I pray for those that need to put their faith in you. Lord, will you bring them to a faith relationship with you? We help them to know that you came to do what they couldn't do. Save them and redeem them. Lord God, will you bring them to a faith relationship with you and experience the good life, the eternal life that you came to offer? Lord God, as followers of you, will you remind us of the joy that we have in knowing your presence, knowing your peace, knowing eternal life? Lord, help us be faithful to take that good news to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 